Hi, hi, welcome, welcome. This is Metapol with me, Cactus. Today in the show, we're going to finally move past the mini-series that we've done on political misinformation, on conspiracy theories, and the mainstreaming of them in many American media sources. Instead, we're going to do a wrap-up of the various news stories, many of which have dramatic impacts on the entire world, that have happened across the last week. Of course, there was a lot to offer and a lot to learn about political systems in that mini-series about political disinformation. However, there's only so much we can do while still remaining relevant to the current day. Keeping that in mind, today we're going to be covering the vaccine trials and approvals in many Western countries, as well as the Brexit deal, or possibly lack thereof, the wide-scale agricultural protests in India, the largest protests in human history, as well as the ongoing misconduct around the Hunter Biden story and around American standards of corruption in general. Without further ado, let's get started. The most core development in the COVID-19 vaccine race is that the Pfizer-BioNTech vaccine has achieved approval in the UK around two weeks ago, Canada around a few days ago, and most recently in the US, which found its approval on the 11th of December, only a day before this is being recorded. The AstraZeneca and Moderna vaccines also seem to be successful in their preliminary trial data and are on track to be approved soon as well. The Pfizer-BioNTech vaccine has also already started to be distributed and given out to the elderly and healthcare workers in the United Kingdom, who was the first to approve it, and the vaccine distribution has been relatively successful. There have been a few cases of allergic reactions, similar to what you would have if you are, say, allergic to peanuts, and there have been advisories given out in the UK for people who have had a history of severe allergic reactions in the past. However, these international approvals mean that the vaccines are likely past a very high standard of scrutiny, and what this means is that the proper processes were conducted in order to ensure a very high degree of safety that is well worth the risk and the reward of being immune to COVID-19 for a period of time at the very least, and possibly ending the pandemic altogether. To go a little bit deeper into the political implications of this, of course this is a win for Trump. The standard arguments about presidential power and about the nature of government do apply, as in, there's not necessarily any reason to say that the government process was more important than, say, the individual vaccine companies themselves, the situation of COVID-19, and the willingness of the world at large to order these vaccines ahead of time. However, the result that was promised was ultimately achieved. Now, one actual negative consequence of this rapid development might be the partisan anti-vaxxers in the United States, those who believe, based on their own partisan leanings, that the vaccine would be somehow corrupt, that would be somehow influenced by uh, Donald Trump's own political demands. However, as I talked about in three or four episodes ago, the approval in foreign countries that follow different processes outside of the sphere of influence of Donald Trump himself, and even of those domestic politicians, since there is a much broader separation between scientific and political officials in these other countries such as the United Kingdom and Canada, means that there is a very high standard of rigor that has been applied to inspecting these vaccines, 
and that regardless of one's own political beliefs, however polarized they are in the United States, that there is a very high degree of effectiveness in these vaccines. It's important to actually look at these broad-level trends and think of their political implications. Now, there are two things that these are drawn to. One, in the United States particularly, is political partisanship and polarization among gender lines. There has been an increasing trend of women voting more towards the Democratic Party and towards men voting more towards the Republican Party. Now, as I hypothesized before in the election episode, this is likely due to something I call the conspiracy gap, which is closely tied to something that other researchers call the empathy gap. Of course, the hypothesis here is that those who are more likely to make decisions based off of their own emotional connections to either a politician or a policy proposal are much more likely to be influenced by the appeals of conspiracy theories, which are fundamentally appeals to emotion, appeals to tribalism, appeals to these base human instincts that would be much more connective with those who are not actually processing the information in front of them. This also bolsters the idea of a partisan conspiracy gap as well, at least in the idea of different conspiracies appealing to different parties and thus influencing different demographics of the population. This is what you see with conspiracy theories that are often about power, that are often about immediate action, that are often militaristic and authoritarian in nature, being prominent in Republican circles, such as QAnon, such as quote-unquote deep state conspiracies, as well as the equally delusional, but with a sense of grandeur, with a sense of false moral high ground, such as the racial conspiracies, and even such as anti-vaxxers being incredibly prominent in the Democratic Party as well. Of course, traditionally, anti-vaxxers have been more Republican-leaning, but strangely, we've seen a reversal of that in polling numbers, as I talked about before, in the recent political climate. Of course, as we talked about in our mini-series, a lot of this circles back to the difference between reality and opinion, and quite frankly, many of the American media institutions' inability to distinguish between the two. When there is ongoing cultural polarization, and not only is there polarization, but that these cultural issues are then used to attack other issues which have a clear point in reality that can actually be argued outside of one's own personal emotional feelings, outside of one's own political beliefs, using evidence, using the scientific method, etc., then you see a corruption of the ability of media institutions to actually report on those scientific ideas, leading to a higher degree of anti-vaxxership and leading to a higher degree of conspiracy belief in general. This is made worse by the various actions of politicians, including Donald Trump insisting that the election was stolen, and including Kamala Harris casting aspersions on the medical staff in the United States. All of this is conspiratorial behavior, and quite frankly, it should be disqualifying for all members who engage in it. However, because of the degree of media corruption and the revolving door between political parties and political ideologies and the so-called journalistic communities in the United States, this is something that runs rampant. Two gloomier news to those across the pond, there is looking to be an increasing chance of no-deal Brexit, including Boris Johnson himself saying that that possibility is likely. Brexit is a very complicated, esoteric issue, 
but with a few abstractions, you can see that it shows certain similarities to the politics of the US and to some other even more unstable areas. Of course, there are much better sources to talk about Brexit itself, however, something that can certainly be contributed from this podcast is a core idea of uncertainty simplification, which we're going to talk about now. This is an incredibly important point in political systems. Remember that the long-term success of a certain policy, of a certain idea, is based on public approval, is based on political viability, and is based on how those certain actions get distributed through the political system and what opposition it might find, what negative consequences it may have to other policies, and what uncertainty it brings to the general population. What this complicated idea means for Brexit is that the priority is not just the overall economic health, but also the clarity of government and also the transparency of where laws are being decided, of what influence that Brits themselves have over this law, and of the interactions with those laws being passed with the public and with other forms of communication. A common reduction of this that you see is that transparency is valuable in and of itself, which is true but also doesn't capture the underlying ideas behind it. The underlying idea, the uncertainty simplification that we talked about before, is that people are going to make decisions based off of a spectrum of possibilities, based off of a range of what is the best to what is the worst. And although you might offer significant growth on the best end, if there is significant risk to them in decline, then a psychological idea called risk aversion will cause many people to instead take a narrower range that may be slightly worse for them. The uncertainty here is the problem for many decision makers, not the overall average consequences. Multiple studies have found that this tends to range between two to five times of a bias towards a negative consequence. What this all means in the political context is that fundamentally you have to look at how policies will be reacted to in the public and how these things will be distilled over a long period of time, whether people will be able to immediately assess the benefits to them, whether the information pollution that may occur as a result of politics will make this policy more demonized or will make this policy more beneficial. Unfortunately, there is a lot of this political disinformation, there is a lot of oppositional parties that will generally just spread disinformation about popular policies, even if they are actively beneficial in a measurable way. However, in the case of Brexit, this simplification, this loss of economic value in exchange for clarity in government, in exchange for a direct operational lawmaking system that avoids some of the dangers and that closes some of the window of uncertainty is nonetheless beneficial for many Brits. And even though their average economic outcome would not necessarily be better, this is still something you need to consider into the decision-making calculation. And if those citizens do place a higher premium on certainty, do place a higher premium on transparency, then it's perfectly in their right to vote yes, even if it means economic consequences, because they think the benefits are worth the drawbacks. 
Moving on to a similar idea, we're now going to talk about the protests in India, which are over a bill passed to undo the government monopoly on agriculture. There are more than 250 million farmers protesting, which is the largest protest in history. Of course, you can expect protest size to increase as population size increases, so you can think that as time goes on more and more and as population continues to rise, then the protests will get larger and larger. However, in this specific case, it's directly about certain bills that would affect the way farmers' livelihoods are guaranteed and in the way that the government monopoly buys and sells crops from the farmers directly and then eventually directs them to businesses. Some of the core ideas in this bill that is being protested is, as I said before, the undoing of the government monopoly, the allowing of direct contracts between farmers and businesses that would make their own price agreements instead of the price being set through the government, as well as hesitation over the possible loss of minimum support pricing, which is that the government will always buy some number of crops from farmers that are guaranteed in order to ensure their livelihoods even if there is an economic crisis, as there is now, or if there is a downturn in farming, etc. While this is, on average, going to yield significant economic benefits if the bill is passed, the actual risk that is involved for each of these individual farmers may not necessarily make it worth the cost. It touches upon very similar ideas that I already talked about before with regards to Brexit. Much of this uncertainty also places power outside of government hands, which in some frameworks could be considered good and some frameworks would be considered bad. However, when you have this incumbency, when you have uh, a continuation between the past and the present, where many of these farmers at least perceive that there is a fairly good standard of life for themselves, that what they have guaranteed for now is beneficial to them, then once again, that appeal to change, that appeal to dramatic risk is not necessarily going to play well with them. And that's exactly why you have these protests. Another idea to think about this, however, is also the balance between overall economic growth and between those specific farmers' interests. Because if you have an opening up of those markets, if you have a better ease in which those goods are traded, then you're actually going to have not just broader economic growth in the farming industry, but also broader economic growth in the country overall. This will lead to other outsized benefits, such as increases to education, increases in industrialization, increase in political power and influence, as well as in the possibility of technological expansion, of establishing stronger institutions, and generally becoming a more dominant player on the world stage. I'm sure that all these concerns are in Prime Minister Narendra Modi's mind as he is passing this law and as the legislative bodies in India are doing the same. There are also many interesting dynamics involving overall quality of life versus comparative quality of life. The way people perceive how well their life is actually going is not based on the actual quality of what they have, but instead typically based on the growth over time of what resources they have as they age and as time progresses. This is something that has evolved instinctively, but can be incredibly damaging to various countries that may have good economic circumstances, but are in a period of stagnation or even decline, as you see in many countries in Europe and in the United States. 
while not completely undergoing decline, they may have slowing speeds of improvement that don't necessarily match up to expectations. And this, in and of itself, is a major cause of political instability, as I talked about in my last episode, and that I'm sure I'm going to expand on in future episodes to come. However, for now, we're going to move on to a different key idea, which is the trade-off between the benefit to the citizens of the present and the citizens of the future. Of course, one of the core problems in democracy is that not everyone gets to vote. And I don't just mean children under the age of majority, and I don't just mean people who may be physically unable to. And by that I mean that future generations of a country who may not even be born yet are still fundamentally influenced by various government policies. If you have a shift towards better education, if you have a shift towards economic expansion, even if there are negative consequences to the population in the present, you need to balance this with the possible potential not only for those in the present day, but also for those that would be there to reap the benefits in the future. And having this long-term outlook is one of the most beneficial qualities of world leaders. However, it also seems to be one of increasingly scarce qualities, particularly among Western leaders, but I also wouldn't be surprised if this wasn't present in countries such as India as well. However, because of the scale of the possible economic shift from this bill passing, there are high stakes on both sides. There are high stakes for those who have a stable quality of life, who have been improving over the past years, and who have a fundamental risk aversion, not just because it might be evolutionary evolved, but also because it might be actually beneficial to them not to actually engage in this risk in terms of happiness because they're already satisfied with what they have. Ultimately, the question of how a democracy distributes power between those who are forward-looking, those who are in the present, those who have the most to gain, and those who are in circumstances where they would rather keep the same old status quo is one of the core ideas in politics, and the minimalization of any specific one of these groups tends to be the political strategy, particularly in Western media cycles. So, what can we learn from this? What can we learn about our own countries and our own lives going forward? One is that we have to be conscious, we have to be thinking long-term, and we have to be willing to make those trade-offs. Because, as we see over economic growth in time, those who are most willing to make those trade-offs, mainly the Western countries of the past, and now industrializing and education-increasing countries in Asia, are those who stand to benefit in the long term. And that, while we may see our lives as some relatively short span in this story, the lives of those who are born afterwards, of future generations, will continue long after our own story ends. Whenever considering a law, don't only consider the temporary benefits, but also consider the risks involved, consider the uncertainty that it inserts in people's lives, and what psychological damage that might actually do to them, consider the distribution through media systems, as we did through Brexit, and consider multiple phases of benefits, not only to yourself but to future generations, to future industries, industries that may not even exist yet, and to that broader scale of influence. 
The last story or story sequel that we're going to cover today is of the various media manipulations surrounding the Hunter Biden story in the United States. As we talked about previously, regardless of the various laptop accusations from the New York Post, regardless of the ensuing accusations from Hunter Biden's business partners, the very existence of him working in a company that was directly influenced by his father's foreign policy would be a highly criminal offense in almost every other developed country aside from the United States. While one might argue that if it's legal in the United States, then it's therefore justified, there should nonetheless be political consequences for these types of self-dealing, because the underlying ideas behind prohibiting this sort of corruption is the exact same in the United States, and actually more important in the United States, because the administrative officials and the government officials as is are already more corrupt. It's actually more important that these types of things have a negative reaction, have backlash, and have serious enforcement in the future because of the state of play in the states. Of course, we've also covered on the show the various corrupt self-dealings of the Trump administration, including employing his own family members, including directing government money to his own properties, and including inviting foreign officials to those same properties, and of course collecting money based off of that. All of that is also things that should be explicitly prohibited in the United States law, as it is in other countries, and that would invoke an enormous amount of political backlash, even if for some reason prosecution wasn't successful in those other countries. Now, what has made this matter even worse is the news contamination, even otherwise somewhat reputable sources, including the New York Times. These various stories that have thrown targets of quote-unquote misinformation at those even trying to cover the base level of the stories, the level of the stories that I cover here with regards to conflicts of interest, and with regards to things that are publicly available from official government disclosures, things that essentially reach the highest level of verification for a story, regardless of the other ensuing information, regardless of the ensuing information about the Hunter Biden laptop or the Hunter Biden business dealings, etc., those are unverified, but they should be covered as legal accusations. However, even the highest degree of verification, literally publicly available government documents and other public filings, have actually shown that this corruption exists and that a standard of information that is actually being presented is much higher than most of the stories that actually get covered by these various news networks. Nonetheless, those networks threw accusations at those base level ideas. Of course, you can argue that the certainty in which certain types of media, including the New York Post, covered the uh, Hunter Biden laptop itself was not necessarily the highest standard. You could say that it's tabloid-esque behavior. Regardless, this weaponization and dilution of the term misinformation is in and of itself highly damaging to our understanding of how to scientifically solve these problems. If there are false classifications of misinformation as done with the Hunter Biden story, then it's incredibly difficult to build a robust filter, even more difficult than it would otherwise be, to reduce the spread of actual misinformation. 
These things are further polluting the information space, adding problematic definitions and problematic examples to certain terms and making it more difficult for those who are actually trying to make research progress to understand misinformation, to properly categorize misinformation, and ultimately to find solutions. So essentially what they're doing is actively not only misinforming the public, but making it harder to combat misinformation in general, using these faulty definitions and by improperly covering certain stories. So not only is the culturification to blame for the lack of quality journalism in the United States, but also for this active corruption on behalf of political interests, and that is fundamentally based off of the incompetence of many journalists in these institutions. One of the greatest stains on the New York Times reputation, in my opinion, is not only the racial conspiracy theories, but also the poor and quite frankly idiotic personnel that they have in order to cover misinformation. There's a long-running joke in the tech industry about tech journalists that actually has a lot of truth to it. The idea is that there are no good tech journalists, and this is because if someone actually had the skills in order to understand technology at a high level, they would be working on making those innovations and they wouldn't actually be reporting on it. Now, what actually makes this line up with reality is the very political and inherently corrupt structure of American media that makes it so difficult for actual virtuous and intellectually capable people of actually supplying information in those environments. We talk about the disinformation that they actively peddle and that the consequences that they have on actual combat of misinformation, which is highly disdained by many of the circles that are actually working to combat this. And when you have reporters that don't actually understand the scale and the various downstream effects of trust manipulation of those essentially gaslighting tactics that many mainstream media sources use, then of course they're going to have a fundamental misunderstanding of the technology space of fighting social media misinformation as well. Hopefully this gives you an understanding of why these pre-existing media structures are so self-destructive when it comes to actually dealing with technology, and it gives you a further understanding of the failure of trust that has plagued the American media system as a whole. If you want to improve the media quality in the US, or in whatever country, US isn't the only country that's facing these problems, then help share this podcast. Help more people understand the fundamental dynamics at play whenever a new story is shared, and including when this new story is shared. So like, comment, subscribe, and just talk to your friends about many of these ideas. You don't even have to mention the podcast by name. Help the good information get out there and contribute towards making the information space a little bit cleaner. If you do that, thank you. Until next time, this is Metapol with me, Cactus.